You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. The Botanic Gardens at Cranbourne are an iconic spot to visit in Victoria. But just like in many gardens, things haven't always been easy. There have been a number of challenges that have required crafty solutions, particularly below the soil surface. This episode's sponsor is Hort Journal Australia, and the editor Karen Smith interviews Russell Lark and Marie Veldhoven, who explain how the team pulled together to improve the situation and describe some of the plants they're now able to grow there. I'd like to welcome Marie Veldhoven and Russell Lark from the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. Uh, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Thanks Karen. for having us. Thanks so much. Lovely. Okay, so would each of you, maybe starting with you, Marie, would you like to tell me about your role at the gardens? Sure. So um, I'm in the horticulture team at Cranbourne Gardens. Um, I've been here for about three years now, so I still feel like a bit of a newbie <laughs> because there's so many people that have been here for so long. Um, but there's about 10 of us um, in the horticulture team um, and we each look after a kind of a couple of gardens each um, in the Australian garden. Um, and also we have like little working groups. So um, we kind of split off into different sections and I'm part of the soils group. Okay. Thanks yeah. for that. How about you, Russell? Yeah, well, I've been at the gardens for a little over eight years now. Uh, so I'm probably one of the older people that Marie's referring to. Uh, I'm the team leader of horticulture and have been for the last four years so it's a it's really a privilege to work at the, the Australian Garden I'm a, a native plant nut so yeah I, I think I might be there for a few years to come Karen to be honest. <laughs> oh that's fantastic so we are discussing the Australian Garden at Cranbourne and uh, we'll look at the challenges that were incurred in its construction um, but before we get into those uh, challenges. Can you tell us about the garden itself? What was the existing garden and, you know, what was at the site? And, uh, and then, you know, maybe talk us through some of the problems regarding the soil. So um, the, the garden itself is actually um, a botanic garden dedicated to Australian natives. Um, so we're surrounded by conservation bushland um, and then in the middle of the conservation bushland is the Australian garden, which is all the, the landscaped botanic garden area. Um, it's actually an old sand mine in Cranbourne. So the remnants of the old sand mine became the Australian garden and it was actually excavated down to about 25 metres. So there's a big lookout point called Trig Point Lookout. Um, and if you climb up the steps there, when you're sitting, uh, standing on the, the tower, that platform is the same height as the sand hill used to be. So it kind of gives you a really good visual of how much sand was removed from the site. Um, but be also because of that, because it was cut so low, some areas, you know, are kind of down to the water table and just really, really low in nutrients, um, which kind of contributed to the, the starts of, I guess, some soil issues with plants that had been planted here Um you know, originally with not much soil work happening. Um, and the Cranbourne sands in general are really low in nutrients. Um, they're low in pH, low in calcium, and really prone to compaction because of the particle size um, and a lot of heavy machinery that was on the site to do with obviously the sand mine. The machinery was compacting all of the, you know, the leftover surfaces as well. Okay. All right. So um, 
what was your plan of attack once once you know you realized that that was part of the problem how did you approach making those changes yeah i think look at at the beginning really it was to to identify the problem so we got together as a, a horticulture team and sort of assessed plant performance throughout the garden uh, and there was a sort of um, the same issues were rearing their ugly heads, so to speak. So, you know, a lot of nutrient deficiency. We had um, pest and disease issues. We had um, issues with structural integrity of some of our woody shrubs and trees that, that were falling over a little bit. Um, we had shallow rooting and, you know, a lot of plants were, were sort of short-lived. So we, we did that kind of major assessment of the garden and, and really got together and um, made a commitment to, to improve plant performance. So that was the first step, really. Um, to, you know, honestly assess the garden and how it was going and, and we really wanted to do something about it. We're all proud horticulturalists, you know, working at the garden, so we wanted our babies looking good. Um, and then really from that that point after making that commitment, I was, I was really trying to figure out, um, you know, how we're going to approach it and, and what we're going to do. And what we what we ended up deciding was to, to dedicate a resource to it one day a week um, and take four... It was five people actually from the from the horticulture team. We established what we call now the the soil management group. Um, so, and really, the the initial meetings of this soil management group were to develop a sort of soil testing methodology. Um, you know, drawing on some of our previous experience, all of us have studied soils in in some way in the past. Um, we did a lot of reading just to build our knowledge, and um, you know, started gathering some equipment that we needed for these these kind of in house um, tests. And then we then we set up sort of a um, a plan to to map and assess in house all of the problem areas. So um, you know map, mapping those problem areas was number one. Then getting in there and starting to, starting to get dirty. You know horticulture is really about observation. So we started digging some holes and you know pHing the profile, making observations about plant health and um, you know how much moisture was in the soil and all, and all that sort of stuff. And then yeah, basically the the um, yeah, our soil management program has kind of sprouted from those those early days when we decided to dedicate a resource to it. And did you seek any outside advice on that or consultation from soil about the soil management? Yeah, look, we did actually. So after after we sort of initially looked at the garden and understood the problems a little bit more, and we'd sort of developed a, a reasonably effective uh, way to to. Um, investigate our soils, but we rang uh, a a man called Declan McDonald, who's one of Australia's leading soil scientists. He works for for Regen Soils at the moment, and he look he's got a vast array of experience assessing and you know developing really practical um, management techniques for the restoration of for you know large scale urban urban soils. Um, and and it was really Declan's influence that that helped us um, build a more comprehensive understanding of what we we're doing. So. Um, for example, we um, got Declan to, to help us sample and um, laboratory test our soils. So we selected sites throughout the Australian Garden. We selected a few, what, what we called the bulk storage pile, which was um, a pile of soil out the back from the old sand mining days that we used for, for garden redevelopments. We got him to test that. And also any new materials that we're looking to use, so composts and um, any soils we were bringing in. Um, so a pH and nutrient profiles and all that sort of stuff for those. Um, and then basically all of these um, tests ran through the lab. So we tested um, for nutrients, so micro and macronutrients. Obviously, there was no surprise that they were very low, given that it's a <laughs> sand. 
um, cation exchange, which is, um, you know, super important for, for understanding how your soils hold nutrient and also pretty influential on, on soil structure and things like that. And, they, um, and we also tested things like organic content and, um, and particle size analysis too, where they run it through a series of sieves. So, look, it really... It really gave us, a, a, as I said before, a more comprehensive understanding of, of our soils and, and what we needed to do. We could only take it so far without Declan's support. And then, look, based, based on those results, we, we sort of all sat down and um, looked at designing a specific treatment program. So for, for each of these sites, there wasn't a, a, a blanket rule. It, it really was about specifically understanding that area um, and, and treating it. Um, accordingly, so so that was looking at um, adjusting pH, uh, you know, nutrient programs, looking at building organic content, looking at uh, decompaction, you know, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, look, Declan, um, I think I think the the lesson that we learned is you really need that that sort of level of expertise to to come and give you a hand um, to take it to the next level. So yeah, he was really influential. Hmm. Great help. Yes, yeah. when Russell said before about how we had our bulk storage piles tested, that was kind of important too because we thought we're putting all this effort into, you know, excavating huge areas of um, problematic soils. Is what we're replacing it going to be any better because it's from the same site? So we, previously we had been taking sand and soil from our bulk storage site for new, new garden beds. Then we kind of had to question, well, is, th is that any better what was already there? So we got mm. lots of advice on how to treat that sand and ameliorate that soil before we put it in the new beds as well. So that was a pretty important step to see if we were going to be, yeah, recreating the same problems we'd already had. Yeah. 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 Tell me a bit about your management plan of your soil and, you know, how you go about doing that. Yeah, I think, look, having a, having a focus on soils is really important. I think, you know, we tend to, to forget the value of soils and for, you know, 90% of the time, it's probably below the ground that's affecting your, your plant health. So it, it is really important whether whether you're managing a, you know, a large kind of urban park or if you're just managing your garden at home, it's really important to dig a hole and understand your soils and, and really make it a focus because that's going to save you a lot of heartache in the end um, and improve your, your plant performance. So look, at Cranburn, that, that's an investigation of our soils continues, um, you know, across the board today. So we're still uh, walking around the garden, digging holes, getting our hands dirty, using our pH kits, all that sort of stuff. We're, it's a combination of in-house testing and also lab testing um, with, with Declan. Uh, we have a, a mapping and record-keeping sort of program. So every every site we go to, we map um, and make notes about it. And then um, we have a sort of ongoing management um, ongoing monitoring of these kind of treated areas to understand, you know, how the, how the, the treatments are working, how it's affecting pH, how it's affecting the nutrient profile, um, is the organic layer building up, that sort of stuff. Um, and, and then on the back of that, we have sort of a couple of different um, treatment programs. So we've got this kind of small-scale programs that we're treating, um, you know, uh, on, a, on a smaller scale, looking at just liming or composting or... Uh, a nutrient program, potentially gypsum for some of those subsurface layers, and as opposed to you know some of these large scale, you know huge excavations where we're bringing in you know tens or hundreds of meters of soil and, and totally redeveloping these areas. Um, so you know that we've got those those small and large scale jobs earmarked over the next you know two or three years, and we've built that into our soil management plan for the gardens. Uh, and I think. 
Look, one of the key ingredients is that that training of, of staff. So the soil management group have certainly got a an understanding of what we need to do, but we're we're also upskilling the Hort team as well. So it's become part of core business to to really get to know your soils uh, and understand what's going on. And and I guess for the for the future, we're looking to to integrate a lot of this stuff into how we manage our, our water. So our irrigation management, we've got a much better understanding of the field capacity of our soils and permanent wilting points. Um, based on our lab testing, we're looking to develop probably a more streamlined um, mapping technique for our um, for, for all of the, the treatments that we're doing. So we're looking at, you know, incorporating it into a, a geographical information system. If there's anyone out there who's done a similar thing, get in contact with us. It'd be great to hear from you. Um, and then we've got some other issues as well. So we've got a significant plant pathogen in the garden called malaria, which is a pathogenic fungi. Um, and we need to treat our soils accordingly. So we've we've lost um, quite a bit of the collection to this fungus. Uh, so we need to adjust the pH, improve um, water efficiency. We need to incorporate more organic matter. Um, and we're we're actually currently doing a, a treatment trial at the moment uh, in unison with with Melbourne University. So um, yeah, plenty plenty of stuff to look forward to the, to the future. But it's going to continue to be a focus. Okay, and pretty much. Throughout your Australian garden, do you, is is the pH of the soil fairly much the same throughout, or do you have some areas that are a little bit different? Uh, it's it's pretty consistently acidic. <laughs> um, so uh, aside from some areas that are you know right on uh, pathways and things like that, um, the sands here are, are pretty acidic, like around five. Um, four and a half, five. So most areas, whenever we're bringing in new soil um, and compost, we check the pH first, but generally it, it always needs uh, liming. Yeah, but you know, we've had so much experience having soils tested and recommended um, kind of treatments. We've now got like an instant list we can go to. So if the pH is this, add this much lime. So <laughs> yeah, we're kind of uh, getting, yeah. Got the recipe down pat, eh? Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, <laughs> but generally as well, um, the the soils in um, Cranbourne, um, the calcium to magnesium ratio is a bit out. Like the calcium is really low, so um, we've got like dispersive soils, so it's really reactive to moisture. So if it gets wet, it's really wet. Um, it loses porosity and kind of slumps, which means when it dries out, it's really hard and compacted, which is how we get all those um kind of yeah compacted layers and the roots can't grow through. So we've noticed that too. So we're just trying to add, you know. Um, in areas that maybe don't need so much lime, just adding gypsum to try and get that calcium ratio up um, so it's not so dispersive anymore. Okay, hence why how it can be waterlogged or hydrophobic. At the same time, yes, <laughs> exactly right, exactly right. So one of the big pro projects we had was in our um, ironbark garden um, and there was a lot of plants that were kind of failing, we didn't know why. Um, and so um, once again, the soil team came and dug a hole um, Russell has actually been gifted a coffee mug that just says on it, I dug a hole because <laughs> any, any, any time a little investigation blows out into a big project it's because Russell has dug a hole <laughs> and investigated what's happening down there. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we, when we dig, dig down really deep, we could stand in the hole. It was so deep. So we could see the whole profile and, you know, quite a way down, maybe, 600 down um we found kind of a perched water table so there was just a layer that was so compacted no water could drain away and we had you know it was just like a little mini 
uh, little swamp up there. <laughs> so we that we couldn't really ameliorate that. It was so that was an area that we just had to excavate and bring new soil into. Yeah, soil is truly a science, isn't it? It's um, it's it's a little bit un unfortunate sometimes for the general public that they don't understand the true value and the science involved in. Um, soils and, and how much it varies and how to accommodate their own their own gardens. Do you ever run classes on that, like through your friends of the gardens? Because I find that often I've been called out to people's homes and if you could see what they've planted into, it's um, mind-boggling. So I often think, you know, the public really needs to be educated about soils if they're into gardening, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. And, look, my, my background is is landscaping, Um and to, to, you know, let people know how important this is is a really difficult thing, you know. In some cases, they, they didn't want to spend, you know, a couple of grand to get their soils tested and all that sort of stuff. It's just not part of the, the consciousness of building a beautiful garden, you know. But I, I, I agree it'd be really valuable to, um, you know, potentially look at training and, and getting people down for a day just to discuss it. Marie and I hmm. uh, have taken a couple of TAFE groups. Um, yeah, that, the and it actually... Oh, yeah, sorry, Russ. I just no, go for it. I was going to say, just to make sure Karen knows, it was totally off the back of the article that the Hort Journal ran um, about uh, our soils program. Um, TAFE got in, got in touch and asked if they could bring some classes around and we took them on a tour that was solely um, focused on what we did in different parts of the garden to um, fix the soil. So, yeah, it was hopefully like things like this will get people more interested in the soil and we can do more tours like that. Well, I'm just excited that people are reading the articles and, and uh, seeking out further advice like that. That's just fabulous, isn't it? How good does that Yeah, it was great. Um, you really know, good. Contributed yeah. an article and, you know, people are now looking to educate their students about it. Like, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. it was great. And can I, can I just say for the, for the home gardener out there, there, there is... Um, it's really just about getting out there and digging a hole, you know, that when, when you dig a... A hole and look at your profile what what your roots are doing are a really good indication of what your soils are doing so there's there's things that you can do you can you can look at the the color and you can establish whether or not it's waterlogged or or draining freely you can do do a ph test with a ph kit from from bunnings you can jump on a shovel and assess the compaction you know there's there's these really practical things that you can actually mm. get out there and do so i would encourage smell? everyone to get like, out there it... and have a go yeah <laughs> is exactly the soil, is the water just sitting there and it's a bit smelly or if you if a tree has died and you pull it out like look at the roots because in some areas of the gardens here um you know trees had fallen over and we look at the roots it was almost like a flat plate because they oh. they couldn't get down deep enough because it was so compacted but we wouldn't have known that unless you kind dig it up and have a look yeah yeah so let's talk about mulch you did mention in the article that you did some trials would you like to elaborate on that yeah we did so um we set up a year-long trial um of all different types of mulches because we kind of um saw that the we had um an organic mulch like a leaf mulch that was all over the entire site um and it just didn't seem to be uh working uh, quite well for us here on top of the sands. So um, we basically had 24 plots. It looks 
looked like a big um, kind of crocheted blanket. <laughs> we had 24 different plots with eight different mulch types, organic mulches and inorganic mulches, like rock mulches, just to test a few different how they react with our soils on site. Um, and we measured the moisture, the pH, the temperature and the compaction with like a, a penetrometer into the ground just to measure, measure the PSI. Um, and we did that every fortnight for a full year. So we made sure, you know, that we accounted for the different seasons and rain events and um, irrigation we had set up, you know, so it went off during summer, just like it would in the gardens as well. Um, and yeah, after we kind of had our suspicions of what would do well and things like that. And it was really interesting to monitor over the whole year. Um, but basically, at the end of the whole thing, um, we found um, a different mulch. It turned out to be red gum chips, um, and that kind of performed the best. So, you know, the temperature didn't vary too much. It was quite a stable um, temperature throughout the different seasons. Um, but also, you know, it let in moisture, it let in airflow, it didn't compact the sand. So the mulch we did have um, actually had a lot of fines in it. Um, and what that was just compacting on its own and kind of making a mat over the garden. Um, and because it just compacted of its own little layer, it was um, kind of not letting water through because we had overhead sprinklers and um, that wasn't letting the water through. It wasn't letting any airflow. So, uh, yeah, we eventually, it was a huge task, but removed all of that mulch <laughs> and replaced it with uh, the red gum. But, you know, it, it took a year to do those measurements. But when you're removing mulch from an entire botanic gardens, you want to make sure you're replacing it with the right thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, um Four years on, how's it all performing? How's it all looking? It's it's unrecognisable, really. You know, from from four years ago, which is which is really exciting. And that's not only us saying it. That's uh, you know the locals who come in on a regular basis saying, "Wow, it's you know looking so good." And industry professionals coming in and saying this has really improved in the last few years. And um, that's that's kind of testament to, I guess, you know what we we're talking about before with the team kind of getting involved and trying to understand what the issues were and 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 getting in there and having a go so it's been super exciting to see the improvement of the garden and and you know to to develop a really effective kind of soil management program across the garden's been great yeah and even when you know we are doing those big projects um you know the the visitors that come past are really interested in what you know what we're doing and why so you know when you explain to them that well you know this was a sand you know a sand mine and it's compacted because of all the machinery and blah blah, blah. like people are generally interested even when we are doing those projects so it's been really good to um after the soils group kind of uh, established, you know, the way we would do these projects and everything, we made sure that everyone that looks after each area, we didn't just come in and magically fix the problem. You know, everyone that looks after the area was included in that project. So then they understood what the problems were and, you know, how to do ongoing tests, um, you know, while they're looking after the garden to make sure it doesn't happen again. So it's been really good to just include everyone at the whole, at the whole site in the projects. It's interesting that you say about the story because I think um, your, your product should tell a story and if you have a story behind it, you know, half of that is part, well, that is part of the interest and what you've said yeah. um, about it being an old sand mine. Um, many years ago I went to the Eden Garden Project in Cornwall in the UK which it had been built on an old clay pit. Oh, and, wow. you know, they, they created videos and books and everything that told the story. And, and it was just so interesting to see, uh, you know, what could be done on a site that looked pretty tragic and yeah. to now uh, what has become a really uh, fabulous educational project in a sense. We yeah. have plants from all over the world. So <clears throat> you do really have a lovely story there. 
So now let's talk about the plants. You know, how did you, who decided what was going to go in? How do you source those plants? And, you know, what are some of the really uh, interesting things that you're growing there? Well, I think for starters, a lot of people that visit the gardens are surprised that the entire site is dedicated to just Australian natives um, because they're displayed in such different ways. And uh, approximately like across the whole site, we have almost about 1900 different species. Um, And there's ecological gardens that kind of represent like areas of Australia. But then we also have kind of like... um, kind of display like landscape gardens where people can um, take inspiration for their home gardens, you know, maybe things are a bit more pruned or their cultivars that you can find in nurseries. Um, So there's, yeah, kind of different, different areas that you can like take inspiration from. And probably, probably one of our big focuses, uh, you know, over the last four or five years that's, that's been embedded in the Cranbourne master plan was to, to develop um, our Southeast Australian collection. So we're really focusing on, on getting out there as a, a team, both the horticulture team and the, the science team from uh, Melbourne and, and introducing a lot of wild accessions into the collection and starting to focus on ex situ conservation of rare and threatened species and being able to start to tell those stories across the garden, which is really exciting. So, yeah, we, we all get out there into the into the bush and um, get a big plant list. Of, we like pretty stuff, obviously, because it's a garden. Um, <laughs> get out there. And so if you're pretty and rare, that's, that's a big tip for us. But, you know, over, over the last sort of four or five years, we've, we've introduced probably... I look four or five hundred different wild collected species. So it's been a been a really significant effort, and and probably you know for me that's that's what I'm super passionate about. And so a lot of the plants that you are that you are growing that are a little bit more unusual. Do you propagate them for sale for the public? We are starting a a program at the moment where we are we're looking to test some of these wild species in cultivation. Um, a lot of these species have never been grown in cultivation full stop. So, for example, we've got a subalpine section and, you know, we had a lot of people say, oh, I don't know how you're going to go, but they've responded really well, you know, to to higher nutrients. Obviously, where subalpine plants are, um, you know, pH is really low. It's sort of around four and a half and there's not, not much nitrogen in the soil, but they, they come down to lower elevations and they've... Yeah, as, as I say, responded really well. So they're growing beautifully, um, flowering, which we weren't sure if they were going to do, and and sort of identified a few of these species that that we think would be um, really great to sort of, you know, get into the nursery industry and a bit more widely and people being able to plant them in their gardens. So, yeah, we're, we're trialling a lot of species at the moment. Especially when we get a lot of questions, you know, when we're working away in the gardens and visitors come past and they, you know, ask about certain plants and we're like, well, that's a rare thing that we collected from the top of a mountain, on, you know, in the Grampians. So you can't really get it from your, you know, hardware store. But So it would be really nice if we could say, but on the way out, we have them here, you know. So we're hopefully working yeah. towards that. Uh, we also have friends of the, the Cranbourne gardens um so they they basically propagate things from the living collection so there's there's an opportunity three times a year to come down um and it's a mad rush usually on the saturday there's there's you know a couple of hundred people down there getting some things that you wouldn't be able to find in um you know your local nurseries and that sort of stuff so that's an opportunity to get your hands on some of these these rare and kind of quirky things that you don't see i'm surprised you haven't started up an online shop during the yeah i know yeah, we probably should think about that. It's a thought because everybody's <laughs> yeah. buying online, you know. And yeah, uh, definitely. It's been a big shift, actually. We're, we're actually talking as a team the other day about how we, you know, we're struggling because we can't get out to nurseries and we're just ordering stuff online and getting our plants <laughs> in drips and drabs. But yeah, I think botanic gardens and you know local gardens have probably. Uh, 
not that it's been a good time for them during COVID, but I think people that maybe wouldn't have normally um, thought of that as a pastime, a weekend activity, are now all going to their local gardens and parks and stuff because that's kind of all you can do. So we've had so many like locals when we, you know, you committed to that five kilometre radius um, in Melbourne. Um, and, you know, Cranbourne locals that maybe have lived here for years but didn't know that it was a garden or thought maybe it was just like, uh, I don't know, a park or something. And But, you know, there's nowhere else to go. So they come here and they're discovering it for the first time, which is, yeah, really cool. Well, um, there was a survey done uh, about that, people gardening for the first time. So people during 2020, uh, many, many, many people purchased plants for the first time in their life. Really? Wow. That's amazing. Everyone yeah. was worried about what was going to happen with this pandemic, so they started growing. Seedlings were selling out like hotcakes. All the gardens really? couldn't keep up uh, the seedling supply. I guess the good part about, about that, and plus the fact that people are locked in their own homes, they're wanting to create an environment, whether it be an apartment or a house, uh, indoor plants, as you know, have become extremely popular. In fact, I heard one on the radio the other day sold for $27,000 for almost just a node of a particular type of Monstera, I think it was. Wow, that's <laughs> a, we're in the wrong business. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. So uh, people buy them because then they on sell. So anything that's got a bit of irrigation has gone gangbusters. But, yeah, so uh, let's just hope that we can inspire people to continue that trend of of growing and um, with you guys bringing in some of these rare and unusual because I often see for sale and classified as rare or unusual and I think god I've got that in my garden that's <laughs> yeah. so um, but to truly be able to buy something that is truly rare um, mm. is, is really something so you're doing a fabulous job with that so uh you were talking about that project with the rare plants. Does that have a specific name, that project? Yeah, it does. It's the Raising Rarity Project. So um, at the moment, we're sort of in, in the second stage of our pilot program. So we're looking to, basically, it's trialling propagation techniques, um, both seed and vegetative material, um, and, and looking at how they uh, perform in potted culture and also in the garden. So, so these trials go on for a couple of years, um, and we just want to make sure that they're they're suitable for you know people to be able to put in their gardens. Um, so, look, we're looking to um, have a, a sort of inaugural plant launch uh, spring next year, where you know ten to fifteen of these species will be available, and people will um, be able to come down to the gardens and and get their hands on them. Um, so we're yeah we're really excited about that. And this is look this is um, I should give a shout out to Meg Hurst, who is um, who works in in Melbourne. Um, Dr. Meg Hurst, who is is part of the um, Seed Bank in Melbourne, and this was this was her sort of brainchild a few years ago. And we were doing something very similar in parallel, and we've kind of teamed up over the last year, and um, you know it's really started to develop, which is great. So we're looking forward to to being able to provide these plants for for people, and also being able to. Um, give people the opportunity to get involved in, in kind of meaningful plant conservation, you know, to have ex situ populations which are accessioned and we know, you know, who they go to and all that sort of stuff is um, pretty exciting, I reckon. And when we have that very first uh, plant launch, Karen, we'll definitely let you know. 
Well, I, I think sure. there's still another podcast coming on here. <laughs> yeah, uh, we definitely will do that. We'll uh, book in another podcast and, we'll, and we will uh, explore that a little bit further. So that's all sounding very exciting. Beautiful. Do either of you have a particular favourite in the garden, in the Australian garden? Well... Uh, well, I would have to say it probably changes every season depending on like what you have a crush on. But right now I would say the Pimelia physodes, the Qualop bell, just oh, yes. it's the, be- you know, the flowers on it. Well, the, you know, the bracts are so large and so showy and all through winter, it's just such a beautiful, colourful, uh, floriferous plant to have. Um, and it's peak time is in winter and everything, you know, a lot of other things just aren't. So yeah, that's my favourite right now. That sounds fabulous. What about you, Russell? I know it's a hard question. It's hard, Karen. It's like choosing between your children, isn't it? Um, look, I, I I do have to confess that I'm obsessed with eucalypts um, and especially small eucalypts. I think, you know, they're really underrepresented, especially in the urban environment. So I, I love my Mallee eucalypts. To choose one of them would be really difficult, but I think probably eucalyptus lansdowniana because it's got a really amazing story. So this is a species that's that's only found on a couple of hills in the Gola Ranges. Um, and I've gone out there and and collected these in the past. Um, but they have these beautiful crimson flowers. They're, you know, they only get to three or four metres and they have this kind of open canopy. So, you, you know, sometimes with dense canopy eucalypts or acacias, it can be difficult to grow understory around, but these can be real features in your garden without, you know, out-competing all the, all the pretties that you want to put underneath. So, I reckon at the moment, look, if you ask me next week, I'll probably have another favourite Yuki, but Eucalyptus Lansdowniana, I think. Okay. Look, that's fair enough. I'm a bit the same. It changes from <laughs> yeah. week to week. And uh, it's very hard to have a favourite when you love plants in general. And, and Yeah, it is. Do you, do you have an, a favourite Australian plant? Oh, my gosh. Um, I've got two beautiful Xanthoreas in my garden. Well, one. Oh. Yeah, I've got a Xanthorea Johnsonii. So I do love Xanthoreas. Yeah. I do love eucalypts. I do love grevilleas. You know, <laughs> because they, they flower all year round. And, you know, I hate the fact that people say, oh, you know, I've done a lot of garden designing over the years. And they say, oh, don't give me natives. They're too scrappy and messy. And I say that's because there was this whole um, theory that native plants, you just put them in and let them go. But if they get the same love and attention that exotics do, they look fabulous. So yeah, exactly. I do, I do love my native plants, but I love all plants, I'm, I must say. And it's interesting you bring that up because that's a that's a big part of what we do at Cranman. So trying to break down those kind of, you know, generalisations about native plants. I think a lot of people kind of think, oh, it's like the 70s bush garden where you're never prone to calistamine or, or anything like that. So, you know, we have these really landscaped gardens that that represent, you know, um, like urban environments and everything's clipped within an inch of its life. And, you know, we've got these really tight hedgerows or little topiary balls or, you know, you can, you can do so much with natives. It's just understanding that you still have to um, you know, look after and prune them, feed them and put them in the right spots and mm. just not let them go, you know, as yeah, you say, you can, as, as you do with any other plant. Yeah, you can really recreate any kind of style of garden that you um, enjoy, the, the like the aesthetics of. Um, with natives, you just have to choose the right plant for the right, you know, um, growing situations at your place. And so we hope that we've kind of like showed that in the different areas of the garden. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, look, I think... Um, 
Oh, thank you both for joining me on the podcast today. And thanks so much for having us. No worries. Thanks for having us. We're, we're, I just want to say we've got a huge amount of respect for what the Hort Journal does for the for the industry. Um, we think it's a little gem. So it's been yeah, it's been great to come and have a chat. Today. Oh, thanks very much. And if anybody would like to read your article called "Soils Ain't Soils," it's in the April edition, April twenty one edition of Hort Journal Australia. So. Um, yeah, go online and check it out or subscribe. So thank you very much. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Karen. Check the show notes for a link to subscribe to Hort Journal Australia and make sure you're following the Plants Grow Here podcast on your favourite listening platform so you don't miss out on our weekly episodes. We create content for professionals working in a green industry but keep it approachable for keen home gardeners. There are already 76 other episodes and counting, so there's bound to be something that tickles your fancy in our back catalogue.